without further ado, like to um, introduce my guest. Would not spend too much time upon that because I know I will not ever be able to do justice. Our guest today is simultaneously a cultural icon as well as a political figure. It is primarily the latter that we are uh, referring to and have called him in his capacity as today. Um, hopefully, he will be talking um, on this particular topic, which is worded the role of the youth in the present political developments. Um, I'd like to invite, um, and I'm sure you'll give him the warm welcome once again. Mr. congratulate you all on emergency being imposed on us. So this thing about uh, December debate is a bit premature. <laughs> about our manifestos. Because the general is determined to stay in power every which way. It's a uh, It is a defining moment in Pakistan's history. Defining moment in more than one way. But it is a time, and I'm very pleased that I was invited here to address the youth. I repeat, I'm very pleased that I have been um, asked here to address the youth. Uh, I think that it is a critical time for all of you. It's, it's your future that is uh, at stake and this is the defining moment where you could make a difference. In my opinion, this is a time when we have a great opportunity for bringing about a change. Remember, a crisis also affords an opportunity. And this is an opportunity that Pakistan can change its course and we can change our future. So I think that, again, thank you very much for asking me to come here. Um, I'll speak for about 15, 20 minutes and then what I really want to uh, hear are your questions and so I hope to have a lively question answer because as you know, we politicians tend to get carried away by the sound of our voice. We keep going much too long. And I really want your input so that at least, uh, you know, I know how you are thinking. So let me just say, start off with saying that, what are the crises in Pakistan? The number one crisis is due to the war on terror. After 9-11, 
what we see now in Pakistan is a merging of all sorts of militant forces in this country. What started off as a hunt for Al-Qaeda by a general serving the United States interests and what actually most of us felt that we were justified in helping the U.S. in its war against terror of what happened to them on 9-11. But the way the general went about it, I think most of us knew where we were heading. Because um, the first, of course, uh, um, the bombing of Afghanistan and the Pakistan's uh, role played in the, in the destruction of the regime in Afghanistan. I think that was the beginning of the mess that is that we are right now in. Because now you find Hamid Karzai saying he wants to talk to the moderate Taliban. Actually the time was before the bombing. And I just want to just briefly uh, make you, uh, uh, let's go back to history, the, the facts that have been glossed over since. Before 9-11, before sorry, after 9-11 and before the bombing, which was almost three and a half weeks. In that time, basically the Taliban was saying that, look, give us the evidence and we will hand over Osama. Which was actually a very reasonable demand. Because when uh, the Russians asked for who they perceived to be a terrorist, Ahmad Yakayov, who went to Britain to seek asylum, when the Russians wanted him back as a terrorist, what did the British government say? Give us the proofs in a court of law and we will hand him over to you. It's exactly what the Taliban was saying. And at the same time, the Shura of the Taliban had met. And you know, this pact has been glossed over. And they actually had a meeting and recommended that Osama should leave Afghanistan. So three and a half weeks was all the time that was given for a nation. Uh, you know, to... Uh, to uh, give up what was at that time, what they were asking is the proof that he's a terrorist and we will give him to you. So once the bombing started, once that regime was destroyed, all sorts of forces were let loose, which is why it's important to understand that, to know the mess we are in right now. The only way you win a war against terror, this is the most critical thing, you can only win a war on terror if the people from within whom the terrorists operate from also perceive them to be terrorists. If they perceive them to become freedom fighters, heroes, martyrs, the war is lost. History tells us that every time, the, once a, a freedom movement starts which becomes popular amongst the people, it's impossible because what happens is that the more people you kill, the more people join the terrorists. And this is exactly what happened. What the 9-11 terrorists never expected was that George Bush would play so well in their hands as he has done now. What we are seeing now is that, first of all, you saw the Taliban movement grow. And why did it grow? Because the Americans did not want to lose troops as they are losing in Iraq. So basically, they relied on aerial bombing. And as we all know, bombs do not discriminate between terrorists, women, children, innocent people. So as the bombing increased in Afghanistan, 
the Taliban found a great opportunity to have a resurgence. Because in the Afghan ethos, there are two things in the, in the, in the Pashtun culture which has made them resist every invader from Alexander downwards. Number one is that the, uh, the Pashtun society is very democratic. And because they are democratic, they have never known uh, slavery as has been by the people of the subcontinent in the feudal culture. So basically all along this Pashtun belt, they have valued their freedom because, because of the peculiar system of their divorced uh, democracy, which every village basically makes up its own decisions. So, so therefore, that's one of the main reasons they have resisted conquerors from, from time immemorial. We all know that the Mughals suffered one of their biggest defeats at Ali Masjid. We know that the Sikhs eventually were beaten there uh, in Jamrud where Hari Singh died after a long struggle. We know that the 80-year-old year, year old, uh, history of the British, we know that throughout the 80 years, 80 years, the highest number of British troops in the 200-year rule of the British Raj, highest number of British troops died in the tribal area, specifically Waziristan. And so to, and when the Russians came, it was the same tribes, the Pashtun tribes that resisted, and resisted the Russians and actually bore the brunt of all the casualties. So it was naive of the Americans to think that just because they are Americans and the US cavalry has come to the rescue, they, for them to have expected that there would be no resistance. And for Pakistan to have gone along with them and then allowed um, the sort of destruction and the killing which happened in the Pashtun belt which also led to the emergence of the MMA in Pakistan as a direct reaction to the killing of the Pashtuns. So for us to think that we would not be expected by that was only because I'm afraid General Musharraf has not read his history, specifically the history of the tribal area. So therefore, gradually as the momentum built in Afghanistan, the Pashtuns on this side of the Durand line were always going to be helping them. There were elements that would have helped them. Uh, there's no way General Musharraf, no matter how hard he wanted to please the Americans, could have stopped them. It's a 1,500-kilometer border. I've been to all that area. It is the most hostile terrain you can imagine. It's rugged mountain country. There has never been any Durand line. There is no border there. And so to have expected that Pakistan forces would be able to stop any sort of infiltration was always going to be a pipe dream. And so what you have seen gradually is this movement building up. The more they have been uh, bombed, the more bombing has taken place, the more the resistance has grown. And gradually, when Pakistan army went into Waziristan, you must remember that there was a tribal structure in Waziristan. Even when Pashtuns were, when Taliban were in power in Afghanistan, there was no Talibanization in the entire tribal area. Waziristan had its own structure. So gradually what you saw was as the Pakistani army and specifically when the Americans were bombed through these drones, innocent people started getting killed. More and more people in order to seek revenge, which is the other trait of the Pashtun that they seek revenge, Whenever someone got killed in a, in a tribe, in a, in a village, the more or less the whole village would go to the other side, or the young men specifically. And these young men eventually 
started killing all the tribal elders who were cooperating with the Pakistan government. So eventually you had all the tribal Maliks killed and that whole area has now become what is called now Talibanized. But it is not a religious Talibanization, it is a political Talibanization. It's in order to seek revenge from the Pakistan army and, and the Americans, they have gone on to the other side. Now this is now spreading. What you're seeing is a reaction in the entire Pashtun belt against what has been going on. And now you're seeing Swad, which was you know, one of the most peaceful areas. But, but by the way, the dynamics in, in Swad were completely different to Waziristan. Swad was a reaction of the lawlessness in Swad ever since it became part of Pakistan in 1974. In Deer and Swad, there is a great paper written by Dr. Trimzi uh, on Deer that what what was Deer before 1974 and what happened to Deer after 1974 when it became part of Pakistan. And basically he goes on to say that how a very democratic society where there was complete rule of law completely changed the moment it became civilized by Pakistan, it became complete, there was lawlessness, there was corruption, there was no justice, whereas people would have immediate justice, suddenly justice disappeared. And what you saw the Sharia, the Nabase Sharia, was basically people seeking justice. And they still remembered, the elders still remembered that at the time, before 1974, people had justice. They had access to justice. Villages, if they had a problem, they immediately the village jarga would sit, they would give a decision. The moment they became part of Pakistan, people had to find lawyers, the cases got delayed, the powerful could influence the justice system. And so there was a yearning in the people that, you know, of the old days, which was, at the time of Ali of Sawat, it was basically Sharia law as, as was uh, before 1857 most of uh, uh, the Muslim India. So therefore there was this, so it was a different dynamics of this movement in Sawat. It started off only as a, as a desire to have a better system of justice. And then of course Lal Masjid happened which is, which is again different. That's different, it's fundamentalism which um, in every human community, you have, you have Hindu fundamentalists, you have Christian, you have Jews. So you have fundamentalists, fundamentalists which is uh, basically out of a reaction where you feel your culture is being threatened by an alien culture. This is basically what happened in, in, um, in Islamabad. Um, and this movement is, is gradually growing in Pakistan. Um, the more the Musharraf's enlightened moderation was perceived as vulgarity, the more there has been a reaction in certain parts of Pakistan, and especially in the whole northern or northern belt, in the rural areas, you're seeing this movement already. So what is happening is that under Musharraf, all these movements are now merging together. The reason why it is very serious is that unless someone tackles this pro problem properly, this is now going to spread to the rest of Pakistan. Um, you know, this emergency and and another five-year dose of Musharraf and you will suddenly see the sort of thing happening there will be happening all over Pakistan because nothing can stop it. Karen Armstrong has written actually a very good book on the battle for God. It's about fundamentalist movements all over the world. The moment you try and crush a fundamentalist movement through militancy, it always be, uh, through, through violence, it becomes militant. So now that's one problem which, you know, which we face and which has to be dealt with and I'll give you my solutions how it's going to be dealt with. Number two is another serious problem in Pakistan, which is the big disparity between the rich and the poor, which is growing at a phenomenal rate. The economic injustice, 
because Pakistan has gradually evolved into a country which is basically for a tiny elite. It only caters for a little elite at top. Uh, all the resources in this country, the, all the economic policies are only for us to, you know, point for 1% of the population. The rest of the population is basically deprived in this country, does not have opportunities. The worst is the education system in Pakistan, which increases these disparities. The, um, in, in the three sports, I'll just give you an example, in three sports which Pakistan competed in international level were hockey, squash, cricket. In all these three sports, the main talent always came from the lower middle classes. Um, you know, when I was, HSN had the best sports facilities, best grounds, we had coaches, everything, but boys from HSN could not compete with the boys who were coming from Mentor Park, you know, from playing in the, the street cricket. They were much too, they just could not compete with the with the sort of hunger and drive of, uh, of, of players which come from the lower background. Similarly, in Pakistan, when the, 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 the system of education, uh, which really was intact more or less in 1970, the, the, the colonial education system, the government schools provided the best intellectuals of Pakistan. It was not us, Edison and other schools, but it was the government schools then because they were the people who had the greatest hunger to, to move up, to improve themselves. Now in Pakistan, we have actually made a, you know, we made a ceiling, a barrier for these people. We do not allow them to come up. The education system actually does not allow the people, the mass talent in Pakistan to actually come up. And this is the biggest injustice in this country. And we, the privileged people sitting here, should speak out against it because this is unsustainable eventually this will bring the whole country down remember 100 million pakistanis are below the age of 25. this in itself if, if we educate them if we spend money on them if we develop our human beings this becomes an asset if we leave them as they are this is going to destroy pakistan eventually remember pakistan in 1965 there was this Swedish uh, Nobel Prize winner. In 1965, he wrote a book in which he, on, on the whole of Asia, where he says, in 1965, that Pakistan was the country, the current Pakistan, West Pakistan, was the country that would become the California of Asia. California meaning that the, in the US, the, the highest per capita being in California, he felt that this country, this area had the greatest potential in becoming the California of Asia. What went wrong is number one, of course, we couldn't fix our political system. And as a result, as a result of that not fixing the political system and not having public representation in government, people not, voices not being in government, you had this lopsided system. But most importantly, by spending money on arms, and not spending money on the human capital in this country, this is why we are in this state. And this one, this particular system, rather than correcting this colonial system, <laughs> synthesizing the syllabus, improving the government schools, what we have ended up doing is, is actually the worst of the system where we've actually developed this uh, English medium uh, system, which, you know, not just that, that it's, uh, it's, for the, it's an elitist system, but also it makes us subservient to uh, uh, 
to, to another culture. It's a, it, it has an inbuilt inferiority complex for us. It, it brings us, brings self-loathing in us. You see on, you know, watch television programs, you, you know, you find, I mean, especially since the enlightened moderate days, you watch the TV programs and you see anyone who first, uh, every, almost every program, first they all start speaking in English to establish that they are educated. Then they start in, in Urdu again. And the whole culture of us trying to be embarrassed of ourselves. Remember, you know, the, a society which goes up always has self-esteem. They believe in themselves. There's, there's something, you know, which uh, uh, those of you who would have played sport would realize that the, it is essential for a team to win, to have self-belief. If you do not have self-belief, you cannot compete. That belief that you can beat anyone is the most important thing a sportsman must have when he steps onto the field. So when you have an elite in a country which all that self-esteem is destroyed by an education system which inherently tells you that you are inferior to another culture and civilization, how can you have creativity and originality coming out of that, that sort of